Luke chapter 18, verse 35 to 19, verse 27. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As I heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business." The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. 
but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Let me pray. Lord, as we look into your word and, and, and these, these two stories, these two scenes from your life and this parable that you shared, would you give us our wisdom and insight? Would you, by your spirit, uh, cause your word to do the work in which you desire it to do and you've determined and set out for it to do this morning? Lord, would, might we have eyes to see, not just words on a page, but what it is that you desire for us from your word today. We thank you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Well, I think everyone has probably sent a text message at some point or another and realized that in their uh, haste, their fingers have not functioned as they had intended their fingers to function, and they have sent a message that does not say exactly, precisely what they intended to exactly and precisely say, right? Most of these typos, you know, or, or you know, actually, sometimes you're off a little bit and autocorrect corrects you, but it's more like auto-incorrect than autocorrect, Right? And most of these typos, they're innocuous, you know, the recipient easily discerns what you intended to say, no big deal. But every once in a while, there's an unfortunate typo, right? Every once in a while, the typo causes your text to say the opposite of what you intended it to say. You know, it says don't instead of do. And the person on the other side's like, oh, I mean, that's clearly what they said in the the sentence is grammatically correct, and so I guess it's don't, not do. I would have thought it was do, but it, sa- it says don't, and th- there ends up being confusion. Now, when I'm typing a sermon, sometimes my fingers get going a little too fast uh, for my own good, and um, I can write some typos, and most of the time when I go back and I edit, I catch those. Every once in a while, I'm up here preaching, and I look down at my notes, and I, and I think to myself, I don't think that's what I meant to say. I don't think that's what I want to say <laughs> in this moment, but most of the time I catch those inaccuracies. One of the more, uh, one that's not completely uncommon is as I'm tri- typing and if I'm going to type the word salvation, every once in a while I get the letters mixed around and I type slavation instead. That's an unfortunate typo. It's an unfortunate typo, but But while that may be a slip of my fingers, a mistake of typing, I think sometimes, in reality, that's the mistake we make in thinking and believing about what it means to submit to Jesus as King. The next two weeks, Luke is going to present as Jesus ends his journey. You remember we said that that Jesus had turned his face to Jerusalem and he was, there's kind of this geographical marker and Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem, towards what he's going to do there. 
And in these next two weeks, we have uh, Jesus entering Jericho here, meaning he's close. He's less than 20 miles from Jerusalem now. And then next week, he is literally entering into Jerusalem. And so we have right here at the very uh, precipice of him coming into the capital city, Luke is going to present Jesus as king. This guy, this Jesus, he is the true and the rightful king. We're going to see that over the next two weeks. And this week, more particularly, he is the king to, to, to specific people. He's a king to a particular people, if you will. Indi- indi- more individual, if you will. And then, and then next week, it's going to have a, a more corporate sense. He is king over all, over every power. Now, when many people, even Christians, think about Jesus as king, they make a typo, not on paper, but oftentimes in their heart and mind. They'll say the right things, they'll write the right things, but I think, I think this is my hypothesis, I think oftentimes in our hearts and our minds we make a typo of belief. If Jesus is king, we think, then I must submit. If I must submit, that's bad for me. That's the way we think about it. The presupposition, whether people realize it or not, is an assumption that that we would actually make better kings for our lives than anyone else, including Jesus. The assumption is that submission to anyone or anything is always and can only be bad for us. But that's not what the Bible presents. Not, the, not what the Bible says. It is true in one sense that when a, we become a Christian, when we honor Jesus as Lord, we, we become slaves to righteousness, it says in Romans. And some think, I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to be a slave to anyone, even righteousness. My, the highest good is my freedom. But they don't realize that what that does is it actually makes them slaves to sin. They fail to see submission to Jesus as freedom from sin leading to death, as the Bible would present it. If Jesus is the rightful king, then the only good thing is to submit to him. But you're a Christian, church, right? You're believers, so you don't think that. But I think as Christians, we often say in our hearts something like this, yes, of course, Jesus is king. And yes, of course, he says that I have to obey him. And, and he did save me, and I do get to go to heaven, so I guess, I guess I have to. I guess I have to do it. I guess I have to obey him as king but I guess at least I get my ticket to heaven in the end, so that's good. It's a fair trade, I suppose. And that's the sort of attitude by which we think about Jesus as king. But how does the Bible, how does Luke's gospel present it? How does Luke present or display Jesus' kingship? This week, what I want us to see as we look at this passage in Luke is that Jesus is the king of salvation. 
What kind of king is Jesus? Well, I think Luke wants us to know from this section of scripture, from this section of his gospel, Jesus is the king of salvation. That's the kind of king he is. And he communicates it by a contrast. Men who couldn't physically see are the ones who see Jesus truly. And then Jesus tells a parable as to the consequences of seeing or not seeing. Is the consequences of seeing or not seeing Jesus rightly. And so there are two responses revealed in, in, in those who see Jesus as king of salvation. And, and I think it helps us to see the kind of king that he is. First, we're going to look at uh, the fact that, that these people seek the king. If you see the king, you seek the king. We'll see that in the two stories of the blind man and the short man. And then we'll look at the fact that if you see the king, you serve the king. And we'll see that in the parable of the nobleman. So let's look at these first two stories, these interactions with, with the blind man and with Zacchaeus. And we're going to see that, that we ought to seek Jesus as the king of salvation. But do you see Jesus as king? That's the first question we need to ask ourselves. As Jesus draws near to Jericho, as he approaches Jerusalem, there's a crowd that's following him as he travels. And there's a blind beggar who sits there outside of Jericho. And he hears the crowd and he, and he thinks, what is this about? What? I hear all of this noise. I can't see what's going on. What is all this noise for? And someone replies, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And so what does the blind man do? The blind man calls out for mercy. But note how the blind man calls out for mercy here. He is told it's Jesus of Nazareth that's passing by, but he does not cry out, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me, does he? What does he cry out? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, that might not seem that important to you. We might just read over that. But in reality, this is the only place where a person in Luke's gospel calls Jesus the son of David, and that is a very important reference. What he is saying is, king, the true rightful king, the rightful king of our people, the one who ought to be on the throne, Jesus, have mercy on me. That's what he's saying. He's saying, King Jesus, have mercy. You see, he doesn't merely see where Jesus comes from physically, that is Nazareth, but he sees where Jesus comes from in a spiritual sense. He comes from the seed of David, from the promise of God, the Messiah, the Christ. The blind man sees what the crowds don't. Jesus is not merely a teacher. He's not merely a good guy. He's not merely a miracle worker. He is king. But do you see not only that Jesus is king, but do you see that the king's mercy? That's the next question we need to ask ourselves. The man is calling out repeatedly for mercy. The crowd rebukes him. Hush, silence, blind man. You don't matter. Don't bother the king. Don't yell out. We want to hear if he's going to say something. We don't want to hear your cries of mercy. And what does the blind man do? Oh, sorry. Sorry, I'm just a blind guy. 
I'll, I'll keep my mouth shut. No, he calls out even more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The man is bold, confident, confident either that Jesus will have mercy or at least confident that Jesus having mercy on him is his only hope. Let me ask you, do you think that you have any hope outside of the mercy of Jesus Christ, the King of salvation? If we think we have any hope outside of his mercy, we put our hope in something that will let us down. The result here is similar, if you remember, to the leper in chapter 17. Not only does the man recover his sight, but Jesus says that by his faith he is made well. And, and that, that phrase, made well, it's not just physically being healed, but it it's carries the idea of a greater wholeness, a salvation that he receives by faith. Do you see the mercy of the king? Do you see that? At least that since he is king, your only hope is to plead for his mercy. You see, the wonder is that if we see this, then he's promised to give it. He's promised to give mercy to whoever would call out to him. This promise of mercy is as firmly fixed as his hands and feet were fixed to the cross. You need to know that. He is the king of salvation. But do you see, not just that he's king, not just that he's a a merciful king, but do you see the king's grace? The story shifts from a blind man to a short man, from a beggar to the rich, right? This king, this king of salvation does not privilege certain people based on their economic status or their appearance or their birthplace. If he did, then we all would get nothing. I want you to understand that. That if he determined his grace, his mercy, based on what uh, the outward appearance, economic status, where you're born, what you do, appearance, if he based it on that, then none of us would get a single thing. It must be based on something else. And in this scene, we see what it is based on. It's based on the king's grace. That is to say, his unmerited favor, the favor he gives us, not based on anything that we do, but based solely on his gracious love. Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus, but he couldn't see over the crowd, so he uh, comes up with the idea of climbing a tree. It's been a long time since I've had the feeling of not being able to see something because I was too short. Um, One of my favorite stories, when we were adopting Silas, we were in Hong Kong, and uh, we had to go up and down on elevators oftentimes, right? Um, as you do in a city like that, this got, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd go to Starbucks, we traveled more up and down than we did side to side kind of a thing. And uh, we're in the uh, uh, elevator and it's glass all around. That's the way the elevators were, you know, it's all four sides is glass. And I climb in there and it's all packed with people, you know, a bunch of Hong Kong uh, citizens, right? And I'm standing in the middle. Somehow I get stuck in the middle, this tall white guy. And I'm just like smiling and looking forward. And I realize I'm just, all I'm looking at is my face because everyone's head is literally below my chin in this, in this elevator. It's just the way it was. So I, I don't know so much what it's like to not be able to see what I want to see over the top of other people's heads. Uh, however, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he can't. And so he goes and he climbs a sycamore tree. That story was just 
for fun. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I just like that story. Uh, so he goes and he climbs a tree, and when Jesus arrives, when he comes up to where the tree is, he looks up, sees Zacchaeus, and he says, come down. I need to stay at your house today. Now, I want to ask you a question. Did Zacchaeus seek Jesus, or did Jesus seek Zacchaeus? We know the wee little man did want to see Jesus, right? And that's commendable. It's even an example to us. However, his effort is quickly eclipsed. Jesus already knows his name before he ever comes up to the sycamore tree. And and Jesus calls out to him. And what's more, Jesus already has staying in Zacchaeus' house on his calendar for the day. Hey, uh, Zacchaeus, I'm looking at my iPhone and it looks like I'm supposed to stay at your house. So if you'd come down, let's go. Maybe it's by chance, one might say, but Luke doesn't allow for that. Jesus actually declares his purpose right here in the passage is to seek and save the lost. And he's quoting Ezekiel 34, where the Lord says that he seeks sheep who are already his possession, sheep of his flock. Sheep that are lost and he must find, as we saw in Luke chapter 15, Zacchaeus was the Lord's from before creation. Jesus sought Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus didn't merit being sought because he climbed in a tree, because he had a good idea, because he was too short and Jesus felt bad for him. No. The answer to the question Did Zacchaeus seek Jesus or Jesus seek Zacchaeus? The answer is yes. Zacchaeus seeks Jesus, but he does so because Jesus came to seek and save the lost, of whom Zacchaeus is one. The emphasis is on Jesus' grace. The reason we see Jesus is not because we're so determined, it's not because we're so righteous. It's not because we're so much smarter than everyone else. No, it's not for any reason in us. The reason we see Jesus is because he sees us. The reason you see Jesus, because he saw you. And some may grumble at this, like the crowds grumble at Jesus eating at Zacchaeus's house. They, uh, these crowds saw Zacchaeus as unworthy of Jesus's presence. And, in fact, they were right. Zacchaeus was unworthy of Jesus' presence in and of himself. In church, we are unworthy of Jesus' presence in and of ourselves. And yet, Christ called to you and said, I'm going to eat at your house today. Think about that for one second. Just ponder the wonder that the King of salvation would call out to you, come down from that tree, I'm going to eat at your house. You see, when we make judgments about God's favor, as if we know who is and who is not worthy, we set ourselves up as kings of salvation, right? 
I get to decide. But I am not the king of salvation. He is the king of salvation. There is only one king of salvation. And rest assured, the true king is gracious. Thank the Lord that it's not for me to decide because I am just not very gracious oftentimes. But he is. And if you truly want to see God, you will. As Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But listen, if you don't want to see God, and you're miffed because, you know, well, why didn't Jesus see me? Listen, you would not want him to see you anyway. You would not want him to come to your house to eat today. We rem- remember back in Luke 14, when Jesus goes to the house of the Pharisees? Stuff gets awkward when Jesus does that, right? It didn't go very well for them. You can go back and read that chapter again, but it, it got super awkward for a minute, you know? More often than not, our thinking ourselves as worthy is because it's because we actually feel, fail to see and understand the great worth of Jesus. And so that's our last question in this first part of seeking Jesus as the king of salvation. Do you see the king's worth? Do you see the king? Do you see his mercy? Do you see his grace? Do you see his worth? Zacchaeus responds to these grumbles by giving away half his stuff and paying back anyone whom he defrauded in his tax, collect, tax collecting. And he pays them back fourfold, which is vastly more than the, than the law would have required of him. The law would have required something like paying it back plus 20%. And he says, no, I'll pay it back times four if I've defrauded a single person. Again, it's not Zacchaeus's actions that make him worth the king's grace. No, Luke is giving us a visible example of what faith and repentance looks like. It doesn't need to say, and Zacchaeus repented and believed in order for us to know that. Jesus' words tell us that. He says, today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus' actions are what John the Baptist called bearing fruit that keeps with repentance. Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Here is how we observe that people are submitted to Jesus as king, as king of salvation. They respond in repentance and faith. That's what they do. And that repentance bears fruit in their life. You can see it. Zacchaeus believes. He believes that receiving Jesus into his house exceeds anything that he could give away. He believes that receiving Jesus into his house that day, for that day, is worth more than anything he could give away. It's worth more than anything that Jesus would ask, worth more than, than the hospitality, what it will cost, the food, and what it will cost to, pay, to feed his disciples and to feed Jesus. Worth more than anything to just be the guy that Jesus came and stayed at his house for a day would be an honor in and of itself because he understands the worth the king. Listen, do you think of yourself as the person who has to give your stuff to Jesus? Or do you think of yourself as the person who gets to give your stuff to Jesus? Do you think of yourself as the person who has to submit to Jesus? 
or the person who gets to submit to Jesus? Do you think of yourself as the person who has to obey what Jesus said? Or do you think of yourself as the person who gets to obey what Jesus said? Are you the person who has to come and worship on Sunday morning, worship Jesus? Or are you the person who gets to come and worship Jesus on Sunday morning? Which is it? Do you see the worth of your king? Zacchaeus' joyful reception is put in contrast to the crowd's grumbling in the same way that Luke 15 contrasted the servants who were joyful at the finding of the lost person versus the people who were complaining. How do you view submission to Jesus as king? Does it have to or does it get to? Because we often think of salvation solely as, well, I'm, I'm justified before God's eyes now. I get a ticket to heaven. But that is not how the Bible presents salvation. Salvation is not only Jesus, by his death and sacrifice, taking away the penalty for our sin, but it's Jesus enabling us to no longer sin. It's him, by his Holy Spirit, by the power of his word, enabling us to actually live rightly. That's good. And if we think of that, as something as less than good, if we think of that and think, gosh, I wish I could do whatever I wanted instead, then we need to stop and wonder and ponder, do I really believe in this Jesus? Do I really believe in this Jesus? The one who's good all the time. The one who died for me. The one who knows everything. The one who who created all things and, and all things live and breathe and have their existence in him and it's for him and through him and to him that, that all things exist. Do I really believe in that Jesus? Because if I did, I would view his commands a little differently, wouldn't I? If he knows everything and he's always good and he's always gracious and he's always merciful, then obeying his commands would be grace to my life. Obeying his commands would be mercy in my life. Obeying his commands would be salvation in my everyday existence. Today, I experienced salvation because I did what he said instead of doing what I wanted. Do we see Jesus like that? Do we see him as the king of salvation? And that's where the story turns because Jesus, uh, he turns to this parable And we have to ask ourselves, are we serving Jesus as the king of salvation? Some some setup to this so that we can understand it a little bit. First, we need to understand that this is the last thing before Jesus begins to enter Jerusalem, right? Verse 11 and 28 kind of sandwich this parable, making it effectively the last recording teaching of Jesus before his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And the reason for telling it is right here. It says it right in the text Luke tells us, is because they expected that the kingdom would appear immediately. And so Jesus wants to correct that misunderstanding. As we'll see next week, the crowds, many of them don't understand what, makes, what actually makes for peace. 
Second, the parable is a description of what Jesus is actually about to do. He is going to a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. In view historically, you need to understand, is, is um, the, the son of Herod the Great, when Herod the Great died, the son of Herod the Great actually went to Rome to secure permission to have the same throne as his father had from Caesar directly. And in fact, uh, as I understand it, a lot of Jews followed behind and said, we don't want this guy to be our king. And so for the first century audience, they would know exactly the story that Jesus is riffing off of here as he tells his parable. Jesus is the rightful king, and his official crowning will come by way of the cross, the resurrection, and the exaltation, the ascension to heaven. Third thing we need to understand is this shows us what someone who sees the king of salvation does. It's going to show us what, what someone who rightly sees Jesus as the king of salvation does because of that. If you see by faith that he is rightful, merciful, gracious, and worthy as a king, then you serve him faithfully. But not everyone in the story does that. And so there's three kinds of people I want us to examine as we think about serving the king of salvation. The first is the citizens who reject his reign. We see those in verse 14. A few details we need to note about these people. One... I want you to see that loving the king and submitting to him as king are indivisible. Loving the king and submitting to him as king are indivisible. The reason they didn't want him to reign over them is because they hated him. They did not want to submit to his kingship because they did not love him. They hated him. And this is a direct reference in Jesus' time to the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus. As he entered Jerusalem to initiate this, these events that would cause him to officially take his throne, they rejected him, those who ought to have been quickest to receive him. And Jesus himself said to his disciples, if you love me, you will what? Obey me. Not if you love me, you'll say nice things about me. Not if you love me, you know, you'll this or that or whatever. No, if you love me, you will obey me. They can't be divided. Two, second detail that I want you to note in this about the citizens who reject his reign. Just because they didn't want him as king didn't change the fact that he was reigning over them. I think sometimes we think to ourselves, well, you know, uh, uh, if, if someone hasn't decided to follow Jesus, then I guess Jesus isn't king over them. Well, that's not what the Bible says. And where in what world does that, does that ever work? In what kingdom does that work? Where, where the, the peasant, the citizen of the kingdom can say, well, you know, king, I know you're on the throne and I know you're the rightful king and all, but I just don't really like you as my king. And so I guess you just don't have any authority over me. What happens when someone says that in any kingdom? It doesn't work that way. And so oftentimes what we do as Christians is we say things like, well, you can't, you can't cite the Bible to a non-Christian because they don't see it as their 
authority. Well, the next time you get pulled over, tell the officer, but officer, I don't see, I don't see that sign as an authority over me, and I don't see you as an authority over me, and so I'm going to go ahead and just go on my way now. What's going to happen to you? Doesn't work that way. There is an objective fact of who's in authority. Yes, that speed limit is an authority over you whether you like it or not. That officer is an authority over you whether you like it or not. And yes, Jesus is an authority over you whether you like it or not, or even believe that he exists. It is still true. And you will be judged on those terms. What you did with that. Third, the, the, third, the third thing here, for those of you who like no, points and subpoints, I've got so many of them. Three, that they didn't want him as king did not relieve them of accountability to him. As I just said, every person who lives will be accountable for Jesus. They will submit either unto his mercy or unto his judgment. Every knee will bow, the Bible says. Every knee in heaven and on earth will bow before Jesus, either to his mercy or to his judgment. And we see their fate in verse 27. When the noble man returns and his authority becomes apparent to all, then those enemies are judged. So those are the citizens who reject his reign. But we also have faithful servants. The nobleman gives 10 servants a mina each and instructs them to do business on his behalf when he, he expects a return for his investment. He said very, very straightforwardly, do business on my behalf while I'm gone. Now, this amount of money was about three months wages in that time. Um, that's probably not like the most important detail, but I guess it is important to know in the sense that in comparison to the reward that they receive for their labor, it's a pretty insignificant amount. You get three months' wages, right? The man with ten, with, uh, who comes back with ten minas, then he has 30 months' wages to give back, and what does he receive for being good and faithful servant? Ten cities, in the kingdom. It's intended to be a comparison that just makes you go, what? He gave him 30 months wages and then he got 10 cities? That's, that's an enormous reward for good service. That's, that doesn't even make sense to me that he would be so overflowing and bountiful in giving this nobleman. We need to understand also that this command to do business is in contrast with these citizens who reject the authority. We are to understand from this that doing this business while the nobleman was gone was actually very risky for these servants. Faithful, doing, doing faithfully the king's business will be risky to the extent that people are hostile to his reign. This is certainly true for those first reading the Gospel of Luke who were seeking to follow Christ and to share his good news while lots of people around him were, around them were persecuting them for it. It's also true for many faithful believers around the world today. 
But listen, when the nobleman returns, he responds to three kinds of servants. Two are similar. The, the one who, ha- who returns ten times what he was given, the other that returns five times, and their reward is far greater. What I want you to understand, if, if, if you were to be faithful servants to the king, it's going to be risky. Because you've got to do that business, the business of the king, in, in, a, in a world in, in the face of people who are rejecting his reign. And that takes risk. But I also want you to see that the reward is far more than what you put in. The reward is unimaginably beyond for those who faithfully serve our king. But there's a third kind of servant. The final kind of people here, the wicked servant. And this is really the climax. It's where the the great emphasis of the parable lies. This servant hid what he was given, but why? Why he hid it is so important. He says to the nobleman, I knew you were a severe man who takes what he does not deposit and reaps where he hasn't sown. But wait a second. Who gave him the money in the first place? Was it the servant's money or was it the nobleman's money? Well, it was the nobleman's money. The nobleman is not reaping where he has not sown. He is reaping exactly where he has sown. And then what did the nobleman do? This wicked servant just saw him reward these guys with cities in exchange for their service. He just saw the bountiful generosity of the nobleman and then immediately after says, I knew you were a hard man. I knew you were severe. He's not severe. Not at all. The wicked servant was not seeing the nobleman. Not truly seeing him for who he really was. The servant recognizes the nobleman's authority, but he does not see him as gracious and merciful or worthy. And so the nobleman judges the actions of the servant. How? How does he say he judges it? According to your own words. Well, you see me that way? Well, then then that's the way I'll judge you. You see me as severe? Not as I really am? Then I will judge you as severe. You see me in this light, then that is the light by which I will judge. What kind of people are we? This is the question we have to ask ourselves. What kind of people are we? Are we outright enemies of the king? Are we faithful servants? Are we those who carry the name of the ser- of servant, but although we have been given the riches of Jesus' kingdom in his word, in his church, in communion, in baptism, in hearing the preaching of the word, in all of these things, and yet we turn to him and we say, but you're a severe man. And so I took it and I hid it in a hand- handkerchief. And here I am at the end and you've returned. What do I have to show for it? We have been given such great gifts. And if we know that He is the King of salvation and that His generosity will far exceed anything that we could give on this earth, anything that we could sacrifice, 
how ought we to act then? We see him rightly as the king of salvation. Who do we believe Jesus is? See the merciful king that opens the eyes of the blind? Then why don't we think he will open the eyes of those whom we could share the gospel with? Is he the gracious king that blesses those who are worth nothing with more than they can imagine? Then why do we grumble and complain and why are we discontent about the things that we have? Why do we see, why do, why do so many find things more worthy of their time than Jesus? Is he worthy, a worthy king whose very presence is worth more than all the earthly treasures? Why do we hold back so much of ourselves to him instead of giving all of ourselves for whatever he asks? How do we see Jesus? Do we see him as the king of salvation? he is, then I think it's a bit of a mockery to think of his death and resurrection merely as purchasing a ticket to some state of bliss when we die. If the king is on his throne right now, if he has received the kingdom, and he has, that changes everything about our life. It changes everything about the world we live in. It changes everything about our expectations and our hopes He's the king of salvation. He's setting straight everything that Adam and his sin messed up. Everything that our sin messes up. And that starts not someday when Jesus returns, not someday when we die. That starts today in the way that we live. In our experience of salvation by obeying his gracious words, by serving and submitting to him in all we do by seeing him rightly. In Romans 6, I referenced it a little bit earlier, but I want to read it just a bit of, of Romans 6 to us as we wrap this up. It says, But thanks be to God that, that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin. You've been set free from sin, friends. Did you come in here thinking, oh man, that sin, I just can't get away from it. That sin, I'll never get over it. That temptation, I'll never be through with it. That sin will always weigh on me. It's weighing on me this week. I messed up again. Do you know that he has set you free from sin? You have been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time, at that time, from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That is not a duty, that is a promise to you, friends. As sure as the promise of eternal life is the promise that He will sanctify you. Yes, He can, even from that. Because He's the King of salvation. Do you see that King this morning? Let's pray.